the book of Luke, chapter 22. Luke 22. And we're going to actually read three verses this morning, but we're going to concentrate what we do on the 16th verse of the 22nd chapter of Luke. In Luke 14, Luke writes, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, I adore you, and I'm thankful, Father, for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach your gospel today. Father God, I pray for clarity. God, you it took a long time, Father, for you to reveal uh, this to me, Father God. And um, God, I pray that, that it has been prayed over, Father, and, and longed for, and that my heart has been broken over it, Father God. And I pray, Father God, that the first hearer of this sermon was me, Father God, and that my own heart was cleaved because of it. Now, Father God, as we, as we approach it, Father, I pray, Father, that I will submit myself to you and, and, and this people, Father God, will submit themselves to you, Father, and that we will all be a submitted people here today ready for God, for me to preach and for them to hear and for, for your work to be done. God, I pray for that now, Father. I pray, Lord, that I will do uh, my, my very best, Father, to be completely and utterly surrendered to your purposes today. And I pray, Father God, for your people to do that also. We thank you, Father for uh, this day. We thank you, Father God, for this church and for the liberty to come and to preach the gospel. And I pray now, God, that we will be a people ready, God, to both say it, Father God, and live it today. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Now, um, in, our, in our focal passage, uh, Jesus declares that he will not eat the Passover himself and in, in celebration and observance. And, you know, it depends on the commentator you read. That's a pretty consistent approach is that while Christ says he desires to eat it, is that he refrains from eating the Passover because he's waiting for its ultimate fulfillment. And I don't think we see it. You know, we're, we're talking about the Lord's Supper here, folks. And I know we're not doing it this Sunday, and it's not Easter, which is the Passover season, and it can feel like maybe I'm, I'm wrongly timed today. I don't think so. I think that this is exactly the time and exactly the purpose, and you're exactly the people for the reception of this message. So therefore I'll say that. I will say that we don't often look at the Passover as something to be fulfilled. It's a thing. It's a celebration. It's a season. That we acknowledge and we, we, we credit it with it being, with being right and just and, and, and God's will. But we don't think of it as something that is to be fulfilled. And, and Christ, however, sees it that way. The Passover is to be fulfilled. And so we have to talk about those aspects of it, what it really means for it to be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Look, I think the first thing that we can say is this, is that thousands of years of prophecy and practice reached its apex in the Last Supper between Christ and the Twelve. Once again, it's not about the meal. It's not about blood and wafer. It's not about that at all. But all of the Old Testament is now being fulfilled right there in the upper room. The Passover meal enjoyed by our Lord and His disciples was divinely prepared for the disciples and it's hugely symbolic because this Passover meal, this, this supper of bread and, and wine, this supper displays the elements of our redemption Right there in plain sight. It is as heavy handed as it needs to be. Everything is there. But this is the main point of the Bible. 
The thematic course of the scriptures from Genesis to the upper room was designed to declare the need for the blood sacrifice of Jesus for the redemption of the church. If there's anything that all the Old Testament points toward, all the law and all the prophets and everything that we have, it points to one thing, and that was that men and women need a Savior. It's not just philosophically, but it's in reality. Somebody worthy enough had to come and be willing to die for the sins of everyone else who was so unworthy. That's the completion of the passage. That's the point they didn't get until the cross. That's the point they didn't get until the blood was spilled. That it had always been about the blood of Jesus. It's always been about that. Look, it is at heart of the communion is this sacrifice. It is sacred. It is heartbreaking and it's deeply intimate for both Christ and the believer. That's another one of those ideas I've got to hammer into you today is that this is intimate for you because it was specifically for you. It is theologically and doctrinally for the sins of the entire world. But we are part of that world that so very much needed redemption. So we can't hear this preaching today and be cold toward it. We can't hear this preaching today and think about something else. Because I'll be honest with you, the only thing that matters in the entire world is that Jesus died for your sins. Everything else is worthless. Everything else is trash if Jesus doesn't die for your sins. Don't worry about what's for supper today. Don't worry about vacation next week. Don't worry about the bills. Don't worry about the house. Don't worry about anything else because the only thing that matters is that Jesus came and He died. It's all that matters. To be honest with you, everything else gets burned up. This building will not stand after Jesus returns because it is worthless to Him. It can be sacred to us all we want, but the reality is He will plow it under under the power of His goodness for one reason, because all that remains is that Jesus came and died for the sins of His people. It's all that matters. Our Lord had previously told the crowds cryptically, and I use the word cryptically because that's what it is. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. They heard it and they were offended by it. That's another one of those warnings we have to have. When the truth is preached, am I offended? And look, I know I'm not the best preacher in the world. I get that. And I know I say it and you think it's some kind of faux uh, humility. It's not faux humility. I'm not, it's not even humbly given. It is a very pragmatic approach to 13 years of being a pastor. Very quickly you find out, oh, by the way, you're not our favorite preacher. Very quickly. One of the first things, the first lessons you learn is that almost everybody prefers somebody different. And you know what? For that guy that's somewhere else, he's hearing the same thing. And that great preacher somewhere that everybody thinks is so fantastic and you buy his books, somebody's sending him hateful emails. Guaranteed. Guaranteed every time. There's nobody above it. So I know I'm not the greatest in the world. And the reality, for our purposes, that doesn't matter in the least. What does matter is this. If it's biblically accurate, if it's right with the Bible, what is said from the pulpit, then your reaction reveals your heart. And we cannot afford to be a people that sit in the presence of the teaching and doze off. That sit in the presence of the teaching and want to be somewhere else. That sit in the presence of the preaching and think it's not good enough. Because I'm here to tell you what man thinks is good enough condemns. What man thinks is good enough sends people to hell. Alright? 
So, so how we take the preaching of the gospel reveals who we are in the gospel. Hey, that's for me too. I've got to start hanging on every word the same way. Because it reveals who we are. <clears throat> he says this in John chapter 6. Like I said, one of those controversial passages. In a very controversial place in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 53. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. They heard that and the fun was over. They'd been eating good and they saw miracles and people got just what they wanted. They wanted free food and to be not sick anymore. That's what everybody wanted. And once it got serious, they wanted to get out. I've told you many times. Chapter begins, thousands of followers, ends with 12. And one of them is the devil. The truth that Jesus preaches makes people leave. They don't want any more. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Look, the holy communion of faith in Christ Jesus by, by the sacrifice of His blood, sacrifice, excuse me, by the sacrifice of His flesh and blood for the sins of the world is the only path for men and women to be saved. Now what did I say? I said the holy communion of faith in Christ. The fake communion, the symbolic communion, the one we do in church is worthless unless it represents the fact that you have a real communion of faith in the blood of Jesus. Do you understand that? We take the cup because it says to the world that we belong to Him. That we have spiritually and theologically done what the cup says to do. We've drank His blood. We've eaten His flesh. He now dwells where? Here. We are the church. Why? Because Jesus lives inside of us. We are indwelled by the Spirit of God. Once again, tornado come, blow all these buildings down. Scrape this clean. And First Baptist Church exists just as much then as when there was a building. Buildings can burn down, churches cannot. Buildings can be destroyed. Buildings can be sold. Churches cannot. Churches exist in the heart and mind of their people by the will and purpose of God. So the holy communion of faith in Christ Jesus. It's the only path for men and women to be saved. Literally and figuratively. Those who will be saved are the ones who have eaten His flesh and drank His blood. The symbols of the communion and the Passover on which it is based are vital to our understanding of saving faith in the Son of God. We've got to get this right. And I've got just two points. Just two and I'll show you here in just a second. The listeners of John 6 rejected the call to comprehension and intimacy which our Lord commanded. He was drawing them in to something they did not want. It's always the problem. I'm here to tell you as a, as, as a man who's been in the, in the pastorate for a, for a number of years now. If there's one thing that holds back the faith of people is that they simply decide what they want and they're not going to go for what they don't want. They're not going to go for it. People are not willing to do things God's way because they're going to keep on doing it their way. And I'm going to tell you right now to your faces, if that's your attitude, if that's my attitude or the attitude of my family, then I'll be blunt with you, any preaching is wasted on us. The end of my journey is determined by the one who died to make the journey possible. The end of your journey is determined by the one who wrote the book. And not by your desires. 
So what we have to do here, there, there's a surrender that has to happen in this room today. Not, not among the lost yet. We're ta- I'm talking to the believers first. Among the believers, we have to say, I'm willing to go where God takes me. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how weird around people think it is. Because I'm telling you what, if you think you can shoehorn the gospel into a life that's lived for everything else in the world, I'm going to tell you you're going to fail. All that effort is are, are nails in your own coffin. Because he is a jealous God and he will not rest idly or easily with doing things your way. So, two lessons must be embraced as we go forward. Two lessons. One, at the heart of the Old Testament command to observe the Passover is the symbolic sacrifice of Christ as the Lamb which takes away the sins of the world and enables death to pass over the chosen people. The very incident in Exodus is laced with not irony, but this deep symbolism. It is the idea that you have a chosen people in the midst of a wicked world and God uses blood to protect the chosen people from sacrifice, from destruction, from death. It is the gospel. That incident in the Old Testament is more layered with the gospel than almost anything else. Blood protected God's people from what happened to everybody else, right? The rest of the nation suffered. God protected His people with blood. Look, the symbol of a world decimated by destruction and a remnant preserved by blood is the gospel in a single image. You want to explain the gospel to somebody? That's the gospel, folks. That's it right there. The blood delivers from death. There it is. Paul tells us that just mainly this in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So let's work through that, that verse very quickly. The apostle declares war on the leaven in our lives. That's the very first thing. When we start this journey, we're looking for leaven. And let's be blunt. All of us are swollen up just a little bit, okay? There's leaven. There's leaven in our life. There's leaven in my life. There, there are things left over from the lost Tony that I just can't give up on. There are things in your life left over when, from when you were lost. Attitudes or desires or habits that are left over and they've got to die. They've got to be pushed aside. He declares war and love in our lives. The holdovers from the old way of doing things. The unsurrendered and unwashed aspects of the life of every believer. That's the leaven. Paul reminds us all that we are unleavened already. But that's just, as you already, you really are unleavened. See, this is one of those kind of tensions in the life of a believer. If you are in Christ Jesus right now, if you've been born again to new life by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, you are unleavened whether you want to admit it or not. You may want to live leavened. You may be happy trying to drag your leavening around. But here's the reality. You are unleavened whether you want it or not. You're unleavened because God says so. You're unleavened because the Bible says so. Now it's time to embrace who we truly are. As I've pointed out before, folks, if your nature is to be unleavened, purely for Christ, forsaking all things that came before, 
and you live contrary to that, then you're the most confused thing in the world, right? Because anything that lives contrary to its nature is confused, right? If your nature is to be unleavened, then you better be unleavened. Stop confusing yourself by trying to live the old way in any aspect. Hey, look, that goes for me too. Paul reminds us that we are all already unleavened, but followers of Christ must be urged to embrace the total deliverance that Christ is making in our lives. Again, I do not even know Joseph what Joseph was going to talk about, really. Reminders. You may have embraced all of this before, but we need to be reminded. All sermons are really repetitive because they're based on the Bible. The Bible already said it, so they're all repetitive. So we're reminding, reminding you. The past, the problems, the hurts, the habits, the addictions, everything that defined our sin is personally ours. The blood and power of Jesus seeks to provide a deliverance and a redemption for. Look, as believers, Christ is uniquely our Passover lamb. The one who commemorated, excuse me, the one commemorated throughout the scriptures as the coming Savior of the world by dying for the sins of those who would rely upon Him. The Passover lamb dies for the people. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, 7, when he shows us what that Old Testament Passover lamb in its, in, in its real manifestation looks like, he says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Look, the oppression and affliction, the heaping of suffering upon the Lamb led to slaughter. The piercing for our transgressions is explained in Isaiah 53, 6, the previous verse. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He now justifies his sacrifice of the Lamb by saying, the reason why the Lamb has to die is because all the other sheep have turned and done their own thing. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Amen or oh me. And I know nobody's listening, but that's the truth. The reason why the nails were necessary is because we insisted on doing everything our way. And we would never listen. And once again, go back to the previous point. If it's my way that caused Jesus to die, if it's my way that condemns me to eternal death, then why in the world would I spend the rest of my life trying to get my way? If there's one thing the Bible illustrates is that my way does nothing but hurt everybody. My way leads to death. Under the blood, my way still leads to death. In a redeemed body, my way still is the wrong way. So why in the world would churches spend so much time trying to chase their own way? Why would believers spend so much time trying to do things their own way? If we're really smart and we really embrace the gospel and we've really been changed, the very first thing that comes out of the mouth of a new believer would be, God, just tell me what to do. Because I know I don't know anything. I know I'm wrong about everything. Because the gospel is dying tells me I'm wrong about everything. Everything I thought was right, I was wrong about. Everything I thought was good was bad. Every time. The Old Testament prophetic revelance Relevance is undeniable. And John connects the two, the suffering servant and the sacrificed son of man in John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've, man, we've hit a vein, haven't we? A theme without the Scriptures. 
Every time he's the Lamb of God, and this is what it means to be the Lamb of God, it's always the Passover Lamb who dies for the sins of his people. Both the Lamb led to the slaughter and the Passover Lamb who delivers from imminent death. Jesus is, as Peter describes in 1 Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So what kind of lamb is he? He is a perfect lamb. Everything the law ever desired is right now manifested in Jesus Christ. Absolutely, eternally perfect. Everything. Everything as it needs to be. The everlastingly perfect and infinitely precious Son of God is the one Passover Lamb which can do what the law is unable to do in itself. Jesus delivers forever from sin by His blood. That lamb that died will not just set you free from sin, but set you free forever from sin. Forever. Forever. No further sacrifice is needed because there's nothing that could be offered that's greater than Jesus. If my, if, if, in my misunderstanding of the gospel, if my misunderstanding of the perseverance of the saints demands that, that if I sin, something else has to happen, then I've got to go out throughout all the cosmos and find something greater than Jesus to sacrifice. Jesus is enough because there's nothing greater. Jesus is enough because there's nothing more. Once the blood is applied, the penalties of sin are forever paid. Look, the book of Revelation reveals this truth. And displays the proper response to the saving sacrifice of Christ. Now that's one of the reasons why we're going to talk about this. Is because we've got to as a church look at how we hear the gospel. What's it make us do? Because I'm going to tell you what the gospel does is never go out and come back void. As the scriptures would say. It does what God sends it to accomplish. So when the gospel is out, when it's preached from the pulpit... What do we do with it? Look, doctrine, and this is one of those things I believe. Doctrine in the Bible is orchestral and not just theological. It builds to a crescendo like a piece of music. See, that's the whole point. Is that crescendo is, okay, God, what's my response? I've reached that peak of, of, of sound. I've reached that peak of, of doctrine. Now, God, I need to know what to do. You've brought me to this point. You brought me to the cliff, God. Show me what to do with it. That's where we are. So here it is in, in Revelation 5 9. John writes, and they sang a new song. So therefore, it seems so weird to say it because we look at music, and sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes in moments of, of, of biblically misinformed weakness, I look at music as if it's not as important as what I do. Uh, Kyle, the preaching of the gospel is supreme. Everything we do here has to culminate in the pulpit, right? Every mission trip, every evangelistic thing, everything we do, every song, every everything culminates in the pulpit. It's not that the pulpit is vitally more important. It's that the pulpit is the answer to every question we raise in every other avenue. Every Sunday school class, everything culminates right here. Right here. I understand that. So I'm not saying it's not important. But what I'm saying is this. Is that mandated by the Bible, a singing response is necessary to the Lamb. They sang a new song. Heaven rings with the song of the Lamb. What's the response to the Gospel? Sing out. Ugly, pretty, on key, not on key. Right words, wrong words. Doesn't matter. Sing out. Why? Why? Because that's what the gospel demands. 
The gospel demands that when it is preached and when Christ is acknowledged, the heart is engaged every time. Worthy are you, look at what he says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for it's for you have were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. The action, look, the action of the book can progress. Time can mercifully end, and the eternal state of man can be can commence because Christ is worthy. So they're singing because Jesus is found to be worthy. Because they want it. The sacrifice of Jesus unlocks our glorious future in the Lord. These people are craving it. Craving it. They're so hungry for the gospel to be pronounced and proclaimed and fulfilled in heaven that what happens when it is, they are singing out because now we can end this. Now it can all be over. Christ is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. Doctrinally, Jesus is worthy to do this because He was sacrificed for His people and His blood ransomed the church from every ethnic group on the earth. You know what, folks? The gospel is not Western-centric or Eastern-centric. It's not even Jerusalem-centric. The fulfillment of the gospel of Jesus Christ has always been reaching the whole world. The gospel is a multi-ethnic, multicultural, evangelistic, and missional explosion of the power of God and salvation for the world. To make it a white gospel or a black gospel, a western gospel, or an eastern gospel, a United States gospel, or a Chinese gospel, is to rob it of its real power, and that is to save people from all over the world from their sins. That our God is so glorified when the world comes to the truth. The measure of God's mercy is that the church will look like everybody. Some of Christ from every people and no nation. All nations will be destroyed mercifully. Redemption is the privilege of every people group. None are worthy and the inheritance of no country. The kingdom of God is the eternal nation of Christ, the only one which honors its Lord. The incident within the chapter begins with a song, and singing is the only emotional, spiritual, and intellectually personal exercise that can capture the momentous nature of the issue. We sing about what we care about. We sing about what brings us pleasure. We sing about what brings us joy. We sing about heartache, what affects the heart, don't we? Songs don't encourage the mind. Songs find the depth of the heart. John writes in in, in uh, 5.12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus is worthy to open the seal inaugurating the final days, but now He's worthy of receiving something, and that something is worship. Before the honor was Christ to cut the ribbon on the final revelation of the glory of God on the fallen earth, now He gets something for His, for his sacrifice. He gets power and wealth and wisdom, might, honor, glory and blessing. He gets worship. When we sing the praises of Christ Jesus, we declare the gospel in a personally powerful fashion. The church sings out as one voice because that is the sermon we unite to preach as the body of, as the body of Christ. Why do we sing out? Why do we sing praises? Because that's you preaching. That's your sermon. That's the beginning of your weekly sermon. It happens on a Sunday when you sing the praises of God. Singing and worshiping Christ is the only biblical response for the believer to the realization that Jesus has died for our sins. Risen, reigns, and intervenes for our good. We must fill our lives with worthwhile praise of the worthy, slain Lamb of God. Church today, what is your response to the gospel? 
fill your life with praise. It's not suggested. It's commanded. Two, as we close, what must I do with the truth that I heard? The gospel is revealed in every verse of the scriptures. And we understand this through the words of Jesus in John 5, 39. That problematic passage which say, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Filled with incredible amounts of learning and intellectual prowess. These Pharisees were in the line of the Babylonian rabbis. And they'd searched every jot and every tittle of the Old Testament scriptures. And yet never saw the most important issue. The entirety of the prophetic vision revealed revealed through Moses and the prophets. Pointed to the culmination of the law in the person of Jesus Christ. They should have known. Anybody who studies the scriptures realizes that it all points to Jesus. Animals could never suffice. They could never save. A true, sacrificial, willing, and perfect human substitute was needed. And I use that word um, with full understanding of who we speak of. He came in the person of Jesus. It's the point of the writing for the Jews in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, 4-7, the writer explains the Old Testament law perfectly when he said, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The old law never took away sins. Consequently, once again, one of those words of, of, of logical uh, conclusion. Consequently, when Christ came in the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings have not you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do Your will. O God, as it's written of Me in the scroll of the book. The blood of animals cannot deal with the inheritance of a sinful nature. All the law did was remind all involved of the depth of the disease of sin and the human condition. The law, though perfect, was a plague on the conscience of God and man demanding a just and appropriate response. All the law did was remind us that we are sinners. And all the law did was point out to an everlasting God that we are failing to meet His standard. That hell is required. His response to that was to send Jesus. The response of God to the failure of man and the condemnation of the law was to send His Son to die for the sins of His people. Jesus is the one who came to do the will of God perfectly. Do not underestimate that. Not one mark did He violate. He was perfect in every way, including His birth birth unlike any other. He is the body prepared by God for the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the one who came to do the will of God perfectly, to live the life we are unable to live because of our sinful nature, to die without fear or guile or arrogance or anger, suffering for the sins of a people whose eternity hangs on the success of the cross. We depended on. He was always God. And we can only be His children if He dies on the cross. Despite the purity and completeness of what Jesus has done, the world, like the Pharisees before them, awaits something more to their liking. That's right. There's a whole world out there that just doesn't want this. They want something else. There are churches founded on the principle of preaching what people like to hear. And all they do is make children of hell. 
Because it is only the gospel that saves. A gospel that cuts. That cuts deeply. And that divides. Today, let the words of Christ in John 5.40 attack your heart when He says, Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. He looked in the faces of all those who would reject Him and said, The only place to have life is in Jesus Christ. If you want life, come to the Son of God. Life is here today in the Gospel of Jesus. Hear what our Lord says, how He died, how He rose, and how He reigns, awaiting the day in which all His children will hear His call. Christ calls today. I beg of you, respond before it's too late. Let's stand together.